in Matthew chapter number 12. Now, no doubt some of you walked in this morning and you picked up the sermon outline and you opened it up and said, what are we going to learn about today? And you read the unpardonable sin. Praise God, right? Um, exactly what you were thinking and wanting to hear as you walked into church this morning. I asked somebody this morning, what is the unpardonable sin? And they said it has to be stealing a backhoe from the church. <laughs> that's got to be what it is, all right? I don't think that's exactly right, but it's got to be pretty close, amen? Uh, but that's what we're going to be talking about today from Matthew chapter 12. And so let's read our text. We'll pray and get into what the Lord has for us today. Matthew 12, starting in verse number 22. The Bible says, Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, or deaf. And he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? When the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself, how shall then his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Or else, how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man? And then he will spoil his house. He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Wherefore, I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit." O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you this morning and we are privileged to have been able already to share a time of worship together, singing about your mercy, singing about your love, and singing uh, about the fact that you are risen and you are our present hope and eternal hope. We're so grateful for these wonderful truths. We're thankful for the moments we've already been able to, spare, uh, to share in fellowship together. Now, Lord, I believe that you brought us to these moments with this text of Scripture for a purpose. And I can't help but wonder if that purpose may very well be that there's someone here who, for whatever reason, has been resisting the ministry of the Holy Spirit, drawing them to come to salvation. And I pray that today would be the accepted day, and now would be the accepted time. I pray that all of us would grow in our understanding of the Scripture and that we would have a reinvigorated burden for lost people who desperately need the ministry of the Holy Spirit working through the witness of your saints. And I pray, God, that you will use this truth to compel us to, uh, for those that need to, trust you as Savior, and for those of us that are saved, to be so grateful that you uh, drew us by your Spirit to trust you and gave us a willingness to respond. And we're so thankful for that today. And I pray, God, that you will speak to our hearts. Lord, allow me to preach the truth in love, because this is a difficult truth, but it's a needed one. And I pray for your grace to do it. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. We've seen, as we've studied in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus had presented himself as Israel's Messiah. And in, in uh, Matthew chapter 11 and 12, we have began to see the different ways people began to respond to this 
very uh, uh, difficult truth about Jesus Christ, that He was the Messiah. We see many responses in chapters 11 and 12. We've seen different people respond with doubts, disdain. Uh, some responded with disregard. They, didn't, they were apathetic, like they didn't care who Jesus was or what He was doing. And there were others who responded with dependence, and they believed in Jesus. But what we see here towards the end of Matthew 12 is the most critical response, the most um, difficult response. What we see in the words that we just read is a response of blasphemy against the person and the work of Jesus Christ. What is blasphemy? Well, one person defines blasphemy, blasphemy as the conscience denouncing and rejection of God. The conscience announcement and rejection of God. And in the words that we have looked at here this morning, we will see what is often referred to as the unpardonable sin. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit of God. I will say it is perhaps one of the most misunderstood and uh, taken out of context passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. And yet I would also say it is certainly an important truth that every person should understand. While it's very, very easy to misunderstand what Jesus is talking about here, it is still important that we do understand what He is talking about because the words that He uses are very foreboding. I sat in my office not too long ago and one day... A lady came into my office needing some counseling. And she was convinced that she had committed the unpardonable sin. She was convinced the things that she had done had brought her to a place where God would never forgive her. By the way, can I say that's exactly the place where Satan wants everybody to think they are? It was a privilege for me to be able to take the Bible and share some of the truths that I'm going to share with you today. But what the Bible actually has to say about this subject. And that's what I'd like to do in the time that we spend in the Scripture together today as well. So is there such a thing as an unpardonable sin? Can a person put themselves in a position from which they cannot be saved? That's what we're going to answer as we study this text. And in this text, I want you to see six aspects from this account that help us learn the truth about the unpardonable sin. Number one, the first aspect I want you to write down is the achievement. I want you to note the achievement that takes place here. Verse number 22. If you're still with me, say amen. amen. Verse 22, the Bible says... Then was brought unto him, Jesus, one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. Jesus was in the midst of uh, the middle part of his ministry and a time of his ministry when literally every little thing that he did was scrutinized. And uh, with uh, most of the scrutiny that he was receiving was coming with the most sinister of intentions. People were trying to disprove that Jesus was the one that he claimed to be the Messiah. They were looking for any reason they could to try to discredit Jesus. And so as he continues on in his ministry, we see this opposition that he's facing everywhere that he goes. And in the midst of all this scrutiny, the Bible tells us that Jesus continued to demonstrate that He is indeed the Messiah and the very Son of God in the flesh. And He manifested that by the works that He did. In John chapter number 14, verse 10, Jesus said, Believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else at least believe me for my work's sake. He's saying, listen, if you won't trust what I'm telling you, look what I'm doing. I'm doing works that only... Uh, the Son of God, one sent from God, could do. And so he's facing all this criticism, but he continues to manifest his divine power by the works that he was doing. And of course, that's exactly what we see taking place with this demonstration of Jesus' power as he heals this man who was under the a power of a demon. And this demon had caused him to become blind and deaf to where he couldn't even speak. 
Right? And so uh, literally, as you think about this man who was inflicted under the power of this demon, this demon had brought him to a place where he was completely incapable of himself to see Jesus or even hear Jesus, not to mention speak to Jesus. You're talking about someone who uh, 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 it would be very difficult, um, unless, unless this, this guy somehow was like Helen Keller, all right, to be able to receive information. Um, this demon had rendered him completely incapable. And by the way, I thought about this this week. The, the condition that this blind and deaf man was in under the power of this demon is the exact position that Satan wants to put every person in that has ever walked on this earth. He wants to make them spiritually blind and so spiritually deaf that they cannot come to know the truth about Jesus Christ and the gospel. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter number 4 and verse number 2 that Satan has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine unto them. That's exactly what Satan wants to do with every person. He doesn't want them to know who Jesus is or that Jesus can save them. And so here was this man under the power of this demon who was completely incapable of hearing or seeing. And so since this man was completely incapable of coming to Christ on his own, the Bible tells us that Jesus came, this man was brought to Jesus, Jesus came into this man's life and supernaturally did for him what he could not do for himself, he healed him. He restored to him and casting out the demon, it restored to him his ability to see and his ability to hear. One person noted this healing that Jesus did demonstrated in one act Jesus' dominion over both the spirit world of demons and the physical world of disease. And so in this achievement that Jesus does, he manifests his power and proves beyond any doubt that He is the Messiah, and He is the one that God sent to, uh, to accomplish these wonderful things. And so we see this achievement. But the second aspect I want you to see, the achievement then leads to the amazement. The amazement, number two. The Bible goes on in verse number 23, and this is what it says. It says, And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? The Bible says the people's response is that they were amazed. That word amazed, it, it comes from the Greek word existemi, which uh, indicates that they were beside themselves with wonder. They weren't just superficially, wow, that was really cool. No, it blew, it, this blew their socks off, okay? Uh, that's one phrase, this turn of speech we might use. It blew their minds. They could not believe uh, how awesome this miracle was and that Jesus had this kind of power. By the way, let me just throw this in there. Whenever God does something, whenever it's truly God that does something, it's always amazing. We had a missionary come through one time, and uh, he, the way that he put it is, if you can explain it, then God isn't in it. Because that's how God always works. They couldn't put it into words. It was, there was nothing to describe what Jesus had just done. It was just, He's God. That's the only way what He did could have been possible. And so incredible was the miracle that Jesus had done that the people began to wonder aloud, is this not the Son of David? The Son of David is a messianic term from the Old Testament. And what they were essentially saying is, He's got to be the Messiah. Look at what He just did. And so they were filled with this amazement after they experienced the working of Jesus Christ in their life. And I don't want you to miss this application. When you experience the work of Jesus in your life, it will naturally lead you to conclude that He is the one that God sent to save us. Boy, when you see God work in someone else's life or in your own life, like Peter, when he saw Jesus bring all those fish out of that water, he fell on his knees and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinful man. And he put his faith in Jesus Christ. And when you see God work at your life, in your life, it brings you to a place of true faith and belief in who Jesus is and why he came into this world so the work that Jesus has done and continues to do is one of the greatest manifestations of the fact that He is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And thank God for that. And uh, 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 many of you, the reason you came to Christ is because of something that God began to do in your life, something that God began to do in your family, and that led you down a road that led you straight to Jesus Christ. 
So here's this miracle that takes place and the people's hearts are filled with this amazement which leads us to the third aspect I want you to see. And that third aspect is the accusation. Well, not everybody was happy with what had taken place. There were those religious leaders always trying to sour the mood when it came to things concerning Jesus Christ. And in spite of all the undeniable proof that had been presented There were still those who found reason to deny that Jesus had come from God. That Jesus was who we said He was. Look at verse 24 in our text. The Bible says, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, Well, this fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. I think it's interesting. Multiple times throughout Scripture, though not here specifically, the Bible tells us exactly why the Pharisees so vehemently opposed the ministry of Christ. And in a word, the reason they opposed the ministry of Christ was envy. They were envious of the crowds. They were envious of the attention. They were envious of the power that Jesus possessed. And so, we could put it this way, these religious leaders were threatened by Jesus. He was taking attention from them. He was openly defying their traditions and not going the -the run-of-the-mill way that their religion told him that he had to go. And so because of this, they had made a decision in their heart, regardless of what they saw, regardless of how much evidence to the contrary they could see, they had made a decision that they would not believe that Jesus was the Son of God and the Messiah. They weren't going to do it. And since the miracles Jesus performed were supernatural, and they had decided, I'm not going to believe He's the Messiah, they had to come up with some explanation. Now, there are only two sources of supernatural power in this world. God and Satan. God allows Satan to have some supernatural ability. He, through his demons, sometimes exercises those kinds of things. And so since they couldn't say he had come from God, the only other conclusion they had to come to is, you must be coming from Satan. And they openly defied, blasphemed the Son of God by accusing him of coming from Satan. By the way, there are a couple of religions I could mention who try to make Jesus out to be the brother of Satan or somehow connected to Satan. They're doing exactly the same thing, blasphemy. That's what, the, uh, uh, that's what these religious leaders were doing here. And they accused Jesus of doing miracles in the power of Beelzebub. And we've already talked about Beelzebub. But Beelzebub was a Canaanite god from the Old Testament who the Jewish people often associated with being Satan or the prince of the demons, the lord of the flies. That's Beelzebub. And they said, the only reason you have miraculous power is because Satan's enabling you to do the things that you are doing They made up their minds, no matter how much evidence they were given, they were not going to believe in Jesus. I want you to listen to me on this. When a person makes up his mind to reject Jesus, he will seek any reason that he can to explain away faith in Jesus Christ. When you bring up creation, they explain away creation with evolution. When you bring up the existence of God, they explain away the existence of God by their atheism. There is no God. I've got news for you. Psalm chapter 14 verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. It's foolish. They explain away anything that they're given about God or about Christ with an alternative possible solution. It's exactly what the Bible describes happens in the hearts of people in Romans chapter 1. If you have your notes, I want you to look at this. If you don't, you might look in Romans chapter 1 or at least write the reference down. Romans 1, verses 19 and 20. This is what the Bible says. It says, For the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and God's Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because that when they knew God, They glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Down in verse 25, it goes on to say that they changed the truth of God into a what? A lie. And worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. 
See, this is exactly what people who have made a conscious decision. I don't care what you say to me. I'm not believing in God. I'm not believing in Jesus. And they have to come up with all kind of lies and all kind of excuses not to believe in the truth that is obviously right there in front of their eyes. So we see this achievement led to this amazement which led these religious rejectors to this accusation, blasphemy. That leads us to the fourth aspect we see in this story, and that is the answer. The answer that Jesus gives. Verse number 25 of Matthew chapter 12, the Bible says, And Jesus knew their thoughts. The Bible tells us that Jesus knew the thoughts of those who rejected him. I say Jesus knows your reasons too, if you're unwilling to accept him. He knew their thoughts. By the way, that's something only God can do. Not even Satan can read your mind. Only God is omniscient. Only God knows what goes up, goes up uh, all of what goes up on in here, okay? You don't even understand what you're thinking most of the time. But God knows your thoughts. We find that Jesus manifested his divinity in addressing the thoughts of their hearts here. And he gave an irrefutable answer to every accusation that they had made against him. I want you to look at the answer that Jesus gives as he considers the accusations from their hearts that they were thinking in their minds. First off, I want you to note down that the accusation they gave is preposterous. It was preposterous. Verse number 25, again, the Bible tells us this. It says, And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. And how then shall his kingdom stand? Jesus' first answer to their accusation was to point out the fact that it didn't even make sense logically what they were saying. Satan casting out Satan. He made the observation that any kingdom, any city, or any household that is divided against itself, will destroy itself. By the way, that's a good principle for us to consider for our nation, for our city, and for our homes. The unifying factor for the home is not his side or her side, it's God's side. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that seek to build it. Now, that wasn't in the notes, that was just for free, okay? Jesus said any nation, any kingdom, any city, any household divided against itself is going to destroy itself. And even so, if Satan allowed his own demons to be cast out, he would literally be working against himself. He would be conducting a civil war against his own forces, trying to defeat them. And it didn't make sense. By the way, I'll say this, Satan is the father of lies, the father of deception. He loves to cause disunity wherever he can. But there's one place he never causes disunity, and that is among his own forces. See, they are united to do evil, and you look at what's going on in this world, we have to admit, they're doing a pretty good job of it too, aren't they? Satan's not divided. He knows exactly what he's doing. In fact, one day he'll try to lead the whole world into a one-world government, a a one-world religion, a one-world currency system, and unite all those who reject Christ against Christ in the end at the Battle of Armageddon. That's how well he's going to do at bringing people together. Satan's not divided against Satan. Their accusation against Jesus was preposterous. It didn't make sense. But he brings out a second answer to their accusation. First, we see their accusation is preposterous, but then we see their accusation is prejudiced. It's prejudiced. Verse number 27, the Bible says, Jesus speaking, And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Jesus began to expose the obvious bias that these people had against him and against everything that he did and said. Boy, he said, by whom do your sons cast them out? The reference to their sons was not a reference to their uh, offspring, but rather it was a reference to their, their, their students, 
their followers. You see, the Pharisees, if you study, uh, 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 study the, the New Testament times, the Pharisees were a group that taught their students how to exercise demons. In fact, you read what Josephus has to write about it. They had some incredibly elaborate, and I, I would go so far as to say occultic practices that they would do, thinking that they could try to cast out demons by putting a certain ingredients together and light, lighting certain candles and doing these different kinds of things. By the way, let me just throw this out there. We just got past Halloween. That's the kind of stuff you ought to stay very far away from because there's no stalker reason to it. It does not come from God. But Jesus said, if you're saying, if I cast out demons, I'm doing, some from, I'm doing it in the power of Satan, then how do your students do it? He's pointing out the obvious bias. Whenever Jesus did it, it was wrong. But whenever they did it, it was okay. Whenever they did it, it was coming from God. And he was exposing the bias that obviously existed in their heart. Let me just say this. Some people have already made up their mind about Jesus. And it doesn't matter how much you try to show them Scripture. It doesn't matter how much you try to show them anything. They've made up their mind no matter what you say. They are not going to listen to it. They are biased against Christ. The Bible says in John 3 and verse number 19 that this is the condemnation that men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. And men have a tendency to gravitate to the darkness when they don't want to believe in Christ. I wonder this morning, do you have a bias against Christ? Do you have a bias against Christianity? No matter what's said, no matter how many demonstrations you see of Jesus working in someone else's life, you can always say, well, it's just coincidence. Well, that could happen to anybody. Well, I just can't believe that can be true. Do you have a bias against the truth of Jesus Christ? Let me tell you this. Don't miss this. Satan is working overtime to give every person he can, every reason he can, not to believe in Jesus. If you let him, he will always give you a reason not to believe. So we see this answer that Jesus gives to their accusation. He noted that their accusation was preposterous. He noted that their accusation was prejudiced. But then we see also he noted that their accusation is perverse. It's perverse. Look at verse number 29. With the Bible, Jesus sharing an illustration says this. He says, Or else, how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house? Jesus observed that you can't possibly go into a strong man's house and hope to steal everything that he has unless you first deal with the strong man. Bind him, deal with him, and then you can take everything that he has. And in this example that Jesus shared, guess who is the strong man? Satan. And he's using this example to demonstrate something. Satan was the strong man who had control of this demon-possessed man's life. And Jesus said, I walked in, and I bound the strong man, and that man no longer belongs to the devil. I've set him free. He now belongs to me. That's what Jesus is essentially saying here. One stronger than Satan has to be able to come in in order to set someone free in this situation. And uh, so Jesus indicated that he had taken Satan's property. And it was clear proof that he had power and authority to subdue Satan. And yet in spite of this evidence, we see the Bible tells us that these people still chose to oppose and blaspheme and stand against Christ and their decision to continue, in spite of all this proof, to defy Christ was evidence of the wickedness that existed in their hearts. And so it's at this point that Jesus draws a line in the sand, not literally, but, phys- but uh, figuratively speaking. He draws a line in the sand to expose whose side they were on. Look at verse 30. He said in verse number 30, He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. There is no neutral ground when it comes to where you stand with Jesus. Jesus said, you're either with me or you're against me. You either are working for me or you are working against me. 
Those are the only choices that you have. You listen to me. You won't walk out of this room today and one day stand in eternity and say, well, I just, I wasn't sure what I believed. You won't be able to say in eternity, well, uh, I think, I think I believed in Jesus. Listen, you gotta choose which side you're on today. Jesus is drawing a line in the sand and listen, to make no decision is still a decision. You gotta choose to be for Him or you will by not choosing to be for Him be choosing to be against Him. That's what Jesus is indicating to us here in the scripture. So whose side are you on? I like what Joshua said. Joshua 24 and verse 15, he said, You can go ahead and choose who you're going to serve, but as for me and my house, we will what, church? We will serve the Lord. He made a choice. I hope you'll make that choice today. Listen, Jesus has an answer to every reason that you can give him not to believe. He has an answer for every reason, and he will give you every evidence through the working of his Holy Spirit to know that the truth of Jesus Christ is what you need. But in the end, it's going to be your choice what you're going to do with it. We see the answer, but the, but the fifth truth I want you to see is the anathema. You say, what is anathema? That's a good question. When someone is declared anathema in the Scripture, it means they're being called accursed. And anyone who commits the sin that we're about to look at is anathema. Accursed. For all eternity. At this point, Jesus declared anyone who rejects the witness of the Spirit concerning Himself anathema. Or curse. Look at verses 31 and 32. If you're still with me, say amen. amen. Oh, this is so important. Don't tune me out now. Verse 31. It says, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Now, first and foremost, I want you to note the first words that Jesus spoke in verse 31. He said, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. It is the very nature of God to forgive. It is always God's first response. God is ready to forgive. Psalm chapter number 86 and verse 5 says, For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. And if you're sitting here wondering, would God forgive somebody like me? I'm saying yes. Yes. I don't care who you are and I don't care what you've done. God is ready to forgive you. If you will call out to Him, and ask Him to forgive you. He's ready. And I think it's also interesting as we look at that first phrase. Jesus clearly said that God will forgive all manner of sin and what? Blasphemy. You say, well, if you blaspheme God, you can never be forgiven for that. Wrong. Guess what? Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, said, I, before I was saved, I was a blasphemer. In fact, I killed Christians. I was a persecutor of the church. But God saved me out of that. God forgave me. Hey, guess who else is a notable blasphemer? Peter. Before Jesus went to the cross, how many times did he blaspheme Jesus? Three. And yet after Jesus rose again from the dead, he made it a special point. Where's Peter? And he restored Peter and forgave Peter. Listen, there is no sin that you can commit that God won't forgive if you'll do it His way, if you'll come to Him for forgiveness. God will forgive any sin committed by any man. And oh, how important that is for us to understand the degree of your sin cannot forfeit God's forgiveness from you. You say, you don't know how bad it was what I've done. The volume of your sin cannot forfeit God's forgiveness from you. You say, you don't know how much I've done wrong. The kind of your sin cannot forfeit God's forgiveness from you. Romans chapter 5 and verse 20 says, But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. How many of you are thankful for that today? Grace did much more abound. The point of the matter is, any person can be forgiven of any sin if they are willing to confess that sin to Jesus Christ and accept His forgiveness through His sacrifice on Calvary. 
You can be forgiven. You can be saved today if you'd be willing to come to Jesus for forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. Thank the Lord for that. And friend, you, you cannot leave this room today thinking, well, God couldn't forgive someone like me because that is exactly what the Bible doesn't say. He can forgive you if you would be willing to come to Him for that forgiveness. And so if that isn't the unpardonable sin, what is the unpardonable sin then? Well, let's look at it again. Verse number 31, Jesus said, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. In Mark's Gospel, a parallel account to this same account, in Mark chapter 3 and verse 29, he puts it this way. He said, But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Now get this. Jesus spoke these words directly after the blasphemy of the Pharisees. They had accused him of being demon-possessed, and that's why he was able to cast out demons. They blasphemed the name of Christ. And in spite of the witness of the Spirit that had given them evidence that Jesus was sent from God, they still willfully chose to reject Jesus Christ as Savior and Messiah. And I believe... I'm telling you this is my opinion because that's what it is. But I believe it's at this point that they crossed that mysterious line between God's mercy and God's judgment. And you can be sure there is a line. Jesus said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. And He sent the Holy Spirit of God down into this world to be the drawing agent. Jesus said in John 16, when He is come, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And the Holy Spirit of God is at work in this world today, drawing people to understand that they're sinners and understand who Jesus is and understand they need Jesus Christ to save them from their sin. And as you hear the Gospel declared through the Word of God, the Holy Spirit begins knocking begins compelling you to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's estimated, and I don't know how people figure out these kinds of things, but it's estimated that most people need about eight to ten different gospel presentations before they finally understand and are ready to receive the gospel. I don't know if that's true or not. Repetition is the key to learning. But the Holy Spirit was set down to draw people to trust Christ as their Savior. Here's the blasphemy. When the Holy Spirit knocks, and you say no. Or maybe you say, not today. Or maybe you say, well, I don't know what so-and-so is going to think. Or maybe you say, I don't know what you say. But the Holy Spirit has convinced your heart that Jesus is God. He has died for your sin, and you know you need the forgiveness that He has to offer and the Holy Spirit compels you to trust Christ. And when you say no, and when you say no, and you come back the next Sunday and you say no, and the next time someone tries to witness to you, you say no, or you say not yet, there is a line you can cross where the Holy Spirit of God will stop asking. And if you die without trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior, without listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit of God drawing you to trust Christ, that is the only sin that will never be forgiven. To die without Christ, forgiving you of your sins. To die without confessing Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. During World War II, there was a naval conflict that took place. During this particular conflict, six planes were sent off of the, the cruiser to be able to defend the fleet of ships for the U.S. But as the battle was taking place, it got dark outside, and in order to protect the thousands of lives that were on that ship, the order was given to shut all the lights out, to go completely dark. The problem was those six planes were still in the air. They'd been asked to land... They didn't land. 
They were still engaging in conflict. And when the order came for it to go dark, the people, those, those men, those sacrificial men in the air, they asked for them to turn on the lights on just long enough for them to land. But it was six men or thousands of lives on that ship. And the difficult decision was made not to turn the lights on. And those men flying in that ship, eventually the gas ran out and they perished into the freezing waters. It's a sad story. Here's the point. The day is going to come when God shuts the lights out. And there won't be any more chance for you to trust Christ. No more knock at your heart's door. And you will perish for all eternity. What's your choice going to be? That's why the admonition that God gives us in the scripture is always the same. 2 Corinthians 6.2 Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. Listen, I've sometimes had people say, well, I'll get saved, but I want to wait till Easter. I want to wait till... Don't let novelty keep you from doing what you know you need to do today. Don't let the person sitting next to you, you say, well, I've been in church my whole life. What would people think? I'll tell you what they'd think. Praise God, you got saved. That's exactly what they'll think. Listen, don't let any excuse Satan gives to you keep you from making the most important decision you could ever make in your life to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. And don't let this be your anathema. God having to declare you a curse because you wouldn't listen to a spirit drawing you to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now we're out of time, but I'm going to give you this final aspect just briefly. After the anathema in this story, we see the analysis is given. I'll read it and explain it and we'll be done. Because the underlying reason why these people rejected Jesus, in spite of all the evidence, was because of the wickedness of their hearts. The reason they rejected Christ and continue to reject Christ is because of their evil hearts. Verse 33, look at it. Jesus said, either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. What generation of vipers? How can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. A good tree will only produce good fruit, and a rotten tree will only produce rotten fruit. And so, even so, Jesus said, a good man will produce that which is good in his life, and a rotten man, a corrupt man, will bring forth out of his life that which is evil or corrupt. Here's the comparison. Jesus was the good tree. All right? If we're being honest, no human on this earth is the good tree. None of us start out good. All of us start out, start out rotten. The Bible says that we're born in sin. Did my mother conceive me, the psalmist said. We're born in sin. We are the rotten tree. Jesus is the good tree. And out of his life, he produced that which is good. The book of Acts says that he went about doing good, healing people. The words that he spoke, he never sinned. He never did anything that was wrong. Jesus was the good tree that produced that which was good. It's not just the Pharisees. It's all of us. All of us are the rotten tree that produces only that which is rotten. That is our condition as sinful humanity without Jesus Christ. And apart from the transformative grace of Jesus, every person has an evil heart. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17 and verse number 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then he says, I the Lord search the heart and try the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. In the end, what the Bible clearly makes, uh, makes known to us is that every person will be judged for the evil that exists in their hearts. And that's why Jesus went on in verse 37, or I'm sorry, verse 36. 
He said, but I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. When Jesus spoke of idle words here, he was speaking of uh, every single careless or thoughtless word that you speak. Now, it's estimated that the average person has about 30 conversations every day. And each day, his words, if they were put into a book, would fill up about 50 pages. Now, if you put that into the scope of a year, that would be 100 books, 200 pages long in a year. And you say you never could write a book. We speak a lot of words. Every idle word you'll have to give an account for if you are without Christ. Every blasphemy, every evil thought, everything that has come out of your mouth, you will have to give an account of. You'll be accountable for even those words you speak where you say, well, I didn't mean it. Or I didn't know what I was saying. No, here's the reality that Jesus said. What you say reveals who you are. The words that you speak come from the heart that you possess. No, be careful. Someone says, well, I didn't mean that. Uh Uh-oh, that's not what Jesus said. Every word you're accountable for. One person said, a careless word may kindle strife. A cruel word may wreck a life. A bitter word may hate instill. A brutal word may smite and kill. A gracious word may smooth the way. A joyous word may light the day. A timeless word may lessen stress. And a loving word may heal and bless. So here's the question. What do your words say about the condition of your heart today? It's a fair question to ask because Jesus said we'll be accountable for every idle word that we speak. And in verse number 37, he said, For by thy words thou shalt be justified or declared righteous, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. And I want you to understand this very clearly in conclusion. The only people who will not be made to stand in judgment for their sins in the end are those who have confessed Jesus Christ as their Savior from their sin. That's the only way that you can know when you die exactly where you're going. Through confessing, as the Bible says in Romans 10, 9, with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believing in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. The promise in Scripture is so very clear to us. The psalmist said in Psalm 130 and verse 3, if the Lord should mark iniquities, who could stand? If God was keeping a record of everything that you did wrong, which, by the way, if you aren't saved, he is. One day you're going to give an account for every one of them. And if God should mark all of our iniquities down, who could stand? None of us could stand is the answer. But it goes on to say in verse 4, But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. How many of you are thankful there is forgiveness with the Lord? In spite of all of our sin. There's a story shared by a man that he entitled The Room. It was of a dream that he had one time. I want you to listen to this dream. We're almost done. In this dream, he woke up one night and he was in this expansive room with all of these file cabinets in them. And I don't have time to tell the whole story, but... Suffice it to say, he began to walk around and he realized that these file cabinets contained the record of his life. And as he looked around at the different titles that existed there, he said that he saw one that said all of his friends. It was just marked friends. And he opened it up. It was interesting, all the friends that he had in there. He said right next to the one that said friends was one that said friends I have betrayed. As he walked around the room, he saw several of these things. Uh, uh, One marked for books I have read. One marked for comforts I have given. One marked for jokes I have laughed at. One marked for things I have yelled at my brother. Another one marked things I have murmured under my breath to my parents. He looked at all these different things. 
And as he went across the room, he came to one that said, lustful thoughts. Boy, he didn't even want to open that one up. Evil intentions. He began to realize, as he was in his dream, he did not want anybody to ever find this room. And so he was frantic. He tried to start pulling out drawers and emptying out the contents so he could try to destroy them, but he couldn't get any of the cards out. And he was frantic, uh, uh, panicking about all these things that were taking place. And at just that moment, the door opened. And in walked none other than Jesus Christ himself. And he thought, no, not you. You're the last person I want to see this room. And he just sat down and began to weep. And he said, Jesus, instead of condemning him, came over and sat beside him. Put his arm around him and he said, I know. Then he said he got up. He began to open every one of those file cabinets one by one and pull out those cards. And he began to, with his hand, write his name over every one of those evil things in his blood. He said he panicked in his dream and he thought, no, no, you, you didn't do that. You don't have to do that. I did that. I should have to pay the consequences for that. He looked at him and he acknowledged him, but then he went on his way and he continued to write his name over every single one of those cards. Every thought, every deed, everything that he had ever done, Jesus began to write his name over every single one of them. And he said he, when, he, when he woke up from that dream, he realized a little bit more fully how much Jesus had done when he saved a soul like him. I'm going to tell you something. It doesn't matter how many file cabinets are needed to record all the evil, wicked, sinful things that you've done. If you turn to Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit of God calling you to come trust Jesus Christ, Jesus will write His name in His blood to cover every one of those sins. And you could be forgiven. The truth is, The choice is yours. The only sin God won't forgive is for you to deny the voice of the Holy Spirit and not come trust Christ. Satan is doing everything he can, even right now, to give you every excuse he can not to trust Jesus. Can I beg you? Don't listen to him anymore. Can I beg you, if you are not sure that you're saved, come today and trust Christ as your Savior There was no better day than today.